Grab your Bibles. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Go there now. Oh, dusty. We got we to gotta do something about the dust problem in here. <laughs> Acts 2.42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. How many souls? Every. Oh, that was a poorly worded question. I'm sorry. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, that is an incredible text. That's six verses. Short. Doesn't mean the sermon's going to be short. But that text right there, super important. One of the most important in the whole book of Acts. I would submit to you one of the most important in all the scriptures. But in order to understand it completely and fully, we need to back up a little bit and get some context. Because you probably noticed when we started reading that, it kind of seemed like we were coming in right in the middle of a story. Did it feel that way to you? That's because that's what we were doing. We came right in in the middle of a story. So here's the deal. Book of Acts begins in the wake of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying in our place for our sins. Right? We've talked about that this morning already. God, God loves us. God made us. God created us to have a relationship with him and be close to him. But we've all sinned. We've blown it. Welcome to church. You blew it. That kind of thing. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. We all miss the standard. And the wages of sin is death. We are all subject to death, uh, physically and spiritually, in and of ourselves. That's the path we're all on. But God so loved the world, he sent Jesus, his son, to die in our place. The wages of sin is death, so Jesus died to pay that wage, that debt, for us. Okay? Jesus died and was buried, but on the third day, he rose from the grave. He conquered death. He defeated sin. He won this amazing, decisive victory in his resurrection. Jesus is alive right now. Somebody say, he's alive. He's alive. So we began in the book of Acts with Jesus in chapter 1 ascending into heaven. Yes, we believe that's what happened. That's where he is right now, ruling and reigning. He's on a throne. He's alive and well. He's doing just fine. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. That's our Jesus. Amen? Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended, he said to his disciples, his followers, he said, you guys are going to be my witnesses throughout all the ends of the earth. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about how we as believers, our lives are supposed to be like big billboards that point to Jesus in all things at all times, like a big billboard. Then in Acts chapter 2, we read that the Holy Spirit came. Somebody say the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's the, the, the presence and the power of God. And what happens is the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us when we believe in Jesus. So if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how subsequent to that we can be filled with the Spirit ongoing. And when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, it was amazing, powerful, sound like a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire came down, and, and the believers began speaking in languages that 
they did not on their own know how to speak. Powerful thing. And the crowds around them noticed. And we read last week that Peter got up and he shared with the crowd the gospel. Now say the gospel. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Peter preaches the gospel to this crowd of people and it cuts them to the heart. And we read that 3,000 people got saved on that day through the preaching of the gospel. 3,000 people. And then immediately that flows into what we read today. Like I want you to notice, there's no Acts 2, 41 and a half, okay? In verse 41, 3,000 got saved. And then from verses 42 to 47, there's all the stuff that they did, right? It's not like a big gap in the middle. Like, well, they got saved and then all the believers like took a course or went on a program or like went to seminary and then started doing these things. No, it's immediate. It happened right away. Almost instinctively, they started doing these things. Instincts, kind of weird things if you think about it, right? I thought of it this week about like a little baby, a newborn baby. If you've had kids, you'll remember what this was like, okay? The baby is minutes, hours old. It can't do anything, okay? That baby can't talk. That, it can cry, but it can't talk. The baby cannot walk. It can't stand. It can't even sit up. It can't even hold its head up. That baby cannot contribute to your household. That baby cannot cook a meal for you. It cannot pay the bills. It will contribute to a lot of bills. Can't pay the bills though. This baby is completely helpless, completely dependent on other people to do everything for it. And yet, this newborn baby, like hours old, knows that it needs to eat. And with some help, it can know how to eat. Do you ever stop and think about that? It's like, you're three hours old, okay? And I'm your dad, and I did not teach you. Like, I was there the whole time you've been alive, and I did not teach you about eating. No one's mentioned it. How do you know about it? I haven't had time to teach this to you. I've been freaking out, because now I'm a dad, and now I gotta figure out what I'm doing. But yet they know about eating. It's instinctively, it's because it's built in. Well, so it is with these believers right here. They instinctively did all these things, and we're going to unpack and examine all the things here that the believers did, but they did this, it seems, like instinctively. Well, I'll tell you why that was. It's because the Holy Spirit in them was leading them down that current and leading them to do these things. Now, they still had to be intentional. They still had to choose to act a certain way. It's like if you're canoeing down the river, if any of you are into that, kayaking, whatever kind of vessel you'd like to be in, If you're going down the river, there's a current and it pulls you in a certain direction. Now, you still have to steer and paddle and put some effort in. You don't just throw the paddle away, right? And put your feet up and tip your hat over your eyes. If you do that, you go into the riverbank and you flip over into the reeds and it would probably be pretty funny to see, but that's not like what you really are supposed to do, right? But the current is there guiding you along, leading you in that certain direction. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. And this text, I want to tell you, this text in Acts chapter 2, this behavior, these activities that the early believers were doing, this is a blueprint for us. This is the birth of the early church. Somebody say the early church. And all of these things that they did, this, this is when things were running at full speed ahead. 
right? There were no issues in the church at this point. There were no struggles. Nothing was wrong. The favor of God was on them. And this is what they did, okay? This is the target we aim at, is what I'm saying. This is what the church, capital C, global church, and our local church, this is what we ought to look like, according to God. If you've ever heard the expression, the Acts 2 church, that's where this comes from. If you have ever wondered why we have uh, this certain ministry at our church called 242, that's where it comes from. All the believers were together and they were eating and hanging out and, and under the word and all these things. This is a massively important text about the church. I need you to know something about me. I am an unapologetic lover of the church, capital C church and our local church. I've always loved the church. I've always been fascinated by the church. In, in my mind, there is no movement, there is no organization on the earth like the church. This group of people that have been brought together, not just you know, by random happenstance, we have this common bond of what Jesus Christ has done for all of us that, that binds us together. Amazing. This group of people that can sacrificially love and support one another and be a family together. Amazing. To me, the church can do that like no one else can do that on the earth. And, and also the church is this group of people that have the truth about Jesus Christ. We're literally, the church is literally called in the scriptures the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We have it. We hold it up. The truth about God, the truth about life, the truth about sin, the truth about salvation, the source of salvation. We have all of that. And we're to get that out there to the world. To me, there's nothing like the church. And I would submit this to you as well. Far be it for me to tell you how you should feel, but you ought to be a lover of the church as well because you are a part of the church. And this text is just gonna be a guiding light for us today. Just, a, just a, an anchor, a, a, a stake in the ground kind of moment for us today, just to remind us of what's most important. What, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? Now, before we start unpacking this text, I have two rules for us about reading this text in Acts 2. Can you handle two rules? Just two. The first one is this. This text is not about being religious. Religion helps no one. Religion is here, we'll just follow the rules and we'll check off the box and we'll go through the motions and on paper it'll look like we've fulfilled all of our commitments and obligations. That's not the point of Acts chapter two. It's not a checklist that you cross off and then move on with the rest of your day. No, it's also rule number two. We also don't read it legalistically either legalistically in the sense of, well, you know, every little word and every little dot that's written here, we need to follow it exactly to the, like for instance, I think it's in verse 46, it says that every day these guys met in the temple courts together. So to read this legalistically would be to say, well, in the early church, they met in the temple courts every day. So we got to build ourselves a temple and we got to have a church service every day. Okay. Legalistic. Take a breath, right? Let me show you the door, right? You know what I'm saying? This text in Acts 2 it's descriptive. It's describing something. It's not prescriptive. Like we have to follow it, you know, just by the letter, by the book, okay? You'll see. It's about the heart. It's all about the heart. These actions that we see the early church doing are supposed to flow from our heart of love for God and love for each other, and this is what happens as a result, okay? You good on the rules? 
You guys would all follow the rules anyway, I'm sure of it. You're all good rule followers. Anyway, let's move along. I want to talk first about inputs, I'm calling it. Things that the believers did. Things that the believers acted on. Things that the, the, the people controlled, had control over. Inputs. Things that the believers did as a result of believing in Jesus and being a part of this thing called the church. I got eight things for you. Eight things that the believers did. This is our part. I need you to see this as your own part too. In 2024, if you're a believer, you're a part of the church, this is your part, okay? With me? First thing is this. These believers, they were devoted. So it says in verse 42 of Acts 2, they devoted themselves. That word devoted means loyal, loving, you're given to something, you're serious about something. Let me make it real simple. What this means when they devoted themselves, it means they were all in. All in. Right away, that tells us there's no place in the church for what I would call nominal Christianity. You're a Christian, you know, on paper, or, you know, if a survey asked you what religion you belong to, I don't know, Christian, I guess, because I think, like, I had some distant relative that went to church, like, 100 years ago. I don't know, but it doesn't really mean anything to me. No place for that. That's not what God's calling for. There's also no place for lukewarmness. Yeah, I'm part in, I'm part out. I'm sort of engaged, sort of interested, but sort of not. That's not the target we aim at either. This means there's no room for just giving God and giving the church the leftovers, right? I'm gonna live my life, and then if I got any time and energy left at the end of the day or the end of the week, I might give a little bit to God. I might give a little bit to the church, but I probably won't. No place for that. That's not what the early church looked like at all. They were devoted. Now, Again, we don't read that religiously. Oh, all I got to do is just show up for every single event and, and I'll be good and I'll be a, a good Christian. Not the point. I work here and I don't show up for everything. Just saying, okay? Not the point. It's the heart. It's to see yourself as a vital part of this family, of this group, of this community. And it's to say, you know what? I'm going to be all in. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to show up, not just in body, but in mind and in spirit as well. I'm going to show up with my heart and not just my body. I'm going to be contributing. I'm going to be pulling on the rope. I'm going to be making my best effort to take this seriously right away. That's what the early church was like. They were all in. They were devoted. Second thing is this. The early church, they valued the word of God. It says they devoted themselves to what? A little louder, please. That's a little better now. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's talking about the scriptures. These guys were serious about the word of God. You know, it's funny. They didn't even have the whole Bible written yet at that point, right? They had the Old Testament, but they were serious about the scriptures. Just make note, the church is thriving. The church is growing. The church is having an impact. And one of the things that was happening during that season is that they took a high view of the Word of God. You can't miss the connection there. And I'm not up here, listen, hear my heart. I'm not up here to church bash. Remember, I'm a lover of the church. I want the church to thrive and flourish and succeed. I'm just telling you, this is one of the reasons why there are some churches that are floundering and withering. I'm going to upset somebody. I'm going to say it anyway. Right when you drive by a church that's got the rainbow flags flying out on the front step and they're celebrating all that stuff, okay, that tells me they're not taking a very high view of the Word of God. And if you don't take a high view of the Word of God, 
you have nothing. Nothing at all. So corporately and individually, this isn't just an us thing, it's a you thing as well. We need to be people who are serious about the word, devoted to the word, in the word. Like, do you read the word? Do you immerse yourself in the word? Do you soak in the word? Do you value the word of God? We need to take a high view of the word, just like these guys did in the early church. The third thing is this. The early church, they were in fellowship together. Somebody say fellowship now. If you've been in the church long enough, that word fellowship comes up and you can almost say it and not even really remember what it means anymore just because, I don't know, it's a churchy word we always say. Here's what fellowship is. It's shared participation within a community. Shared participation within a community. That's what it's talking about right here when it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to shared participation in that context of community. So that means you don't just sh- it's not just about showing up for stuff and being present in body. It means you're engaged when you show up for stuff. You engage relationally. You engage with other people, heart to heart, shoulder to shoulder. Now, it does start with physically being there for something. That's a good start. You'll notice in verse 44, it says, all who believed were what? They were together. So we need to be together to have fellowship. You can't have fellowship from a distance is what this is saying, Right? I'm not saying things like the internet aren't helpful for discipleship and, and, and encouragement and there's really good just things about that. But I'm saying if we're gonna like maximize fellowship, we need to be in close proximity to each other. We need to be doing life together, in relationship together. Now, I'll say this. This includes even if there's conflict. Hmm, Just so you know, if you're new to this church thing, we're all real people. We're all, someone said it earlier, we all still have our issues. We're still human. You know what that means? We're gonna do things that are dumb and we're gonna do things that annoy and or hurt other people. I'm not justifying those things. Oh, it's fine, like I'll just fly off the handle and hurt people. No, not the point. But it's inevitable because we're humans. And we're real people. This is a church for real people, just saying. When there is conflict, I have noticed this, a lot of people withdraw. Maybe you, like some, some of you are conflict avoiders. You just, any, like you'll do, go to any length possible to stay out or, or, or away from conflict, okay? I'm not suggesting we should go and look for trouble. When we go looking for trouble, it always finds us. I'm not saying we go look for it. I'm just saying that when it comes up, inevitably, in the life of the community, it comes up. If we're going to have fellowship, that means we push through it. We don't back off from each other in it. Again, it's, oh, that person offended me, and, and I left the church. That's dumb. Grow up. Maybe they did bother you. Maybe they said something hurtful to you. Maybe they did something that was wrong and sinful toward you. That doesn't excuse you to hide yourself off from the fellowship, though. Where in there is the fine print that says you can be in fellowship until it's slightly uncomfortable for you? It doesn't say that. We fight for each other in this. Again, we might have to get really good at apologizing and like sometimes having maybe difficult conversations amongst one another. Hey, you did this to me and I didn't really like it. It hurt me or whatever the case warrants. But the point is this, we don't shrink back because people are worth it. I want you to look around the room right now. Go ahead, turn your head, use your eyes, look around the room at these people that you're sitting here with. Some of you are like, I don't like that person. 
Why were you looking at me when you said that? <laughs> Listen, these folk right here are worth it. They are worth it. The upside of what we stand to gain in the church from strong relationships and strong fellowship is way greater than any downside that might come from any potential conflict. So we fight for fellowship. That's the target we got to aim at right there. You still with me? Number four. Oh, I love this one. In the early church, they ate together. Now we're talking, right? Now we're cooking here. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Call that whatever you want. I call that eating. You don't just break the bread and leave. You eat the bread, people. And I love to eat, so I get excited about this one right here. You need to understand that there is something spiritual about eating a meal with someone else. It's a spiritual thing. Everything is spiritual. Eating is spiritual. Sitting at the table with somebody signifies something. It signifies agreement and oneness and acceptance and some degree of intimacy. If you sit down and eat a meal with someone, that's an act of love toward that other person between the two of you. This here likely has the Lord's Supper in view, like communion. We took communion earlier, but it's not limited to that only. This is also regular meals, church meals. This is potluck meals in the church right here. Who's bringing the spare ribs? Just saying. And now we're gonna make it personal. This is also talking about, look at verse 46, breaking bread where? See, you mumbled that one in their homes. This is not necessarily during a church-sanctioned event, great as those are. This is people were having people over and were eating together in their homes. That's personal. Some of you read that and you say, nobody coming into my house to eat. Hear me on that, though. This is something that happened in the early church. Right? This is the target we aim at. This is what the Lord was doing in this community. Don't answer this out loud. When is the last time that you and I, I will ask myself the same thing, when is the last time you had a meal with someone else in the church? Doesn't count if you live with them. <laughs> Somebody's like, I thought I had him for a minute. Doesn't count. When is the last time you had a when is the last time, don't answer out loud, when is the last time that you had someone over to your house for a meal? Oh boy. Did you get frosty in here or what? This is the real thing. Right, this is, this, this is definitely going beyond the bare minimum. You, you want me to have you over to my house? My house is a mess. Don't care. You're a real person. I've come, this is a sidebar, I've come to conclude, I don't think anybody's house is really as clean as what we think they should be in our mind. Well, I can't have people over, it's not clean. Yeah, well, neither is their house. It's okay, relax. I want you to be thinking, and me to be thinking, rather than just bristling at that thought, I could never do that, flip that script around. Hey, why couldn't I do that? Why couldn't I have someone over? What would that look like? Who could I invite? See yourself in this. Right? This is the word of God. It's still applicable today. It's desperately needed today, in fact. And there are people in the room, I'll stop vamping on this one in a second. I could talk about the eating thing all day, but there are people in the church who will testify how amazing it's been as they've opened up their home to have people in to eat. 
A lot of work's been done. A lot of discipleship has happened. A lot of good things. So see yourself in that. They ate together. When the church was thriving, they were eating together. I just think that's so cool. It's amazing. The fifth thing is this. What the church did, what the believers did, they prayed. Somebody say pray. Pray. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the prayers. What I love about that, it's, it's intentionally vague, okay? It doesn't say how they prayed, you know, as a church. Yeah, I'm sure that's in view. In small groups, I'm sure that's in view. As individual believers, I'm sure that's in view, but it doesn't tell us. We can assume that all of that is involved in that. It doesn't even tell us what they prayed for. It just says that they prayed. On purpose, it says that. You know about prayer. This is communication with God. Any good relationship needs communication. God wants a relationship with you and with us. We need to communicate with him. It's talking to God, and the thing we're often not quite as good at is listening to God. That's prayer, and that's what they were doing. I don't think we need to make that one any more complicated than that. When the church was thriving, they were serious about prayer. How serious am I about prayer? How serious are you about prayer? How serious are we about prayer? And again, we don't need to be legalistic. It's not, oh, we, you know, we don't have a 24-hour prayer chain happening at the church. Oh, we're falling hopelessly short. Take a breath. It's the heart. What's your heart in prayer? I think I just got a little twinge of conviction as I said that. That was fun. <laughs> nice. Okay. I'll talk to the Lord about that one later. Number six, let's move rapidly along before, anyway. Number six, super important. In the early church, they took care of each other. Look at this here. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's church right there. That is so much more than the bare minimum right there. That is sacrificial. That blows my mind. I love this. Now, we're gonna take a little sidebar off of this for a second. Stay with me. Some of you might get mad when I say this. I'm gonna say it anyway. People have read those couple of verses before, and again, rather legalistically, they've said, oh, this is a blueprint for some sort of Christian socialist utopia right here. Right, We need to all sell our homes and, and move into a commune and all live together and, and you know, just live in this. Everyone gets equal treatment and all the same stuff. That's not really what that's saying, okay? Some people swear that that's what it's saying, but it's not. Here's the sidebar I want to take. Socialism, which some advocate that this is what it's talking about, this is a system of, uh, of politics, policy, governance. Uh, it's a system in which proce- uh, or, uh, uh, what's the word? goods and services and money and resources and all these things get distributed evenly among people, oftentimes by the government. There are socialist governments in the world. I would argue that that might sound really nice. One of the things it does, we're just on a sidebar, it kind of takes away the incentive to work because some people will hear, oh, I could go to school for 10 years and get three degrees and go out for a really good job and work really hard 
or I could stay at home and not do much of anything and I'll still get the same treatment. That's like the socialist utopia view. Well, that takes away the incentive to work hard because if I'm going to get the same thing either way, humans are notorious for taking the path of least resistance, right? And so given the chance, that's often what we'll do. Now, let me be very clear. We exist in a capitalist country in Canada. I'm not saying that's perfect either. There's a lot of inequality and wage gap and all these things. I'm not saying that's perfect either, but here's what you need to know. God created you to work. He created you to work hard, to be creative. He created you to move the needle forward and to invent and produce and to develop and advance things, okay? This is not advocating for some sort of Christian socialist utopia. Here's what this is saying right here. There had better not be any needy people in the church. It's the heart. There had better not be people going without in the church. There had better not be people starving to death in the church. That's the heart of this message right here. Which brings up a couple of things. Here's how this works. In order to know that there are needs in the church, number one, we need to be in relationship with each other. It just makes sense. If I'm not close enough to you and I don't know anything about your life, how am I supposed to know when a struggle comes up? How am I supposed to know what you need and when you need it and how I can support you and how I can encourage you and how I can pray for you? We need to be close enough to each other to see those things. If we're not even close enough to see when we're in, when each other, when we're in times in need, something's wrong. Not how it's supposed to be. The part two of this, oh, the part two of this, this also means that when we have a need, we need to be forthcoming with it. So we don't like to hear that one quite as much. Because people aren't psychic. I don't know if you know that. Like I've heard people, I had this need and no one met my need and no one encouraged me and no one prayed for me and no one supported me, so I'm leaving the church in a huff. I go, oh, that's too bad. Did you tell anyone about it? No. Okay, ding, ding, ding. There's the answer. It's a two-way street, of course. And I'm not suggesting that we throw tact out the window and we just start spreading all of our junk all over the place to whoever wants to listen. I'm saying you can do this in a discerning way and in a safe way, but we need to be willing to share our burdens with others. Some of you hate that I just said that. Some of you are notoriously independent and you say, oh, I don't wanna be a burden to anyone and I don't wanna draw attention to myself. I wanna to speak to you, I love you, so I'm saying this out of love. You're putting on the mask of false humility, it's actually pride and arrogance. You say, oh, well, uh, you know, I don't want anyone to make a fuss about me and all that. What you're really, oh, I can handle this on my own. What you're really saying is, I don't need anybody else. I help myself, I'm fine on my own, I'm strong and fiercely independent. A, you're not. We all need each other at some points. We all have needs and we need others to carry our burdens. And the second thing I would tell you about that is this. If you never bring your needs forward or let anyone know and so the community doesn't know what you're going through, not only are you not likely to get any help, you're actually depriving the body of an opportunity to serve you. You see, it's like if you, if you don't use muscles in your body, you just never use them, I haven't got any to use. Maybe my leg, I don't know. You don't use certain muscles, they atrophy, they wither away. They don't go stronger just sitting there idle. If you never bring your needs forward, so therefore nobody meets them, you've robbed the church, you've robbed the community of an opportunity to surround you and love you and support you and use the muscles to get stronger. We can't do that. Who do we think we are? 
They took care of each other. They knew the needs and people were sharing the needs and then people stepped in and they met the needs. That's what happened in the early church. And one last thing on this one. We do this even if it costs us. Like it's great. If you have a need that you're able to meet and it doesn't really cost you anything, great, okay. Sure, you need five bucks. I got 10 in my wallet, so there's five bucks. Don't even really think about it. But what if the need is so great that it's costly and it's sacrificial? What if the need that's there is something that maybe only you or a few people in the church have access to be able to fix and to deal with? And you can't just wait for someone else to go and, I don't know, cut a check or make meals or do whatever needs done. Like, what's God asking you to do? Again, can't be legalistic. You, you can't just go on a frenzy of trying to figure out every need and, you know, ram the square peg in the round hole. Now I've got to meet every need. No, you can't meet every need. That's why we're a family. One body in many parts. But I'm saying when there's a need, you step in and you fill the need, even if it costs you. I'm not gonna say who this was, but someone came up to me like a month ago and they pointed out a need to me uh, that involved a fair bit of expense, like monetary financial expense. And this person said, well, I was planning to take a trip, I don't know, next year or whenever it was, but if it's something we could do to help this person, I'd be willing to like put the money for my trip toward that. Now we're cooking. It's real quiet in here now. I'll let you sit on that one. I don't have to say any more about that. Number seven. I will say one more thing about that. It's a blessing to be a blessing to other people. If you hear that and your heart sinks and oh my word, I'm, if, I, if I help someone, it's gonna cost me. That sounds like not very fun. That sounds like, man, I wish that I could just bury my head in the sand and pretend I didn't see the need. No, it's a blessing to bless someone else. God will actually meet you and do a special work in your heart in that. Because God blesses you so you can bless others. God doesn't bless you so you can hold it like this, like a reservoir. It's supposed to be a river where his blessing flows through you to others. And when he sees that heart, he's gonna keep blessing you anyway. Okay, now I'm done on that one. Number seven, I got two more inputs. The believers attended the temple together. That's what it says in verse 46. They attended the temple together. Now this is similar to fellowship, but this has a specific application, so I wanted to make it a separate one. They attended the temple together. You say, wait a second. Aren't these people Christians? Isn't the temple a Jewish thing? What's the rub? What's the connection here? Well, two things about that. Number one, in the early church, there were no Christian church buildings at that time. There was the home that you lived in, but you didn't go to a nice church building with a steeple on it. They didn't exist, literally for another couple of hundred years after this. The second thing, though, more to the point, is that the church, the early church, grew out of a Jewish context anyway, right? God has this special family, Israel, the Jewish people. It's his special family, special people on the earth. Through them, all the nations are to be blessed. Through them, Jesus the Messiah comes, like Jesus was Jewish, right? Through them, the message of the gospel comes. Through them, the whole rest of the world gets blessed and gets to be saved because of Jesus the Jewish Messiah, right? So it, them being in this Jewish temple is not really a weird thing. That's, that's the ground that they grew out of. Now, the temple is gonna start to fade in its prominence as we go through the book of Acts. In fact, it was destroyed altogether in AD 70. But right now, that's what they did. But don't miss what this is actually talking about. This is talking about corporate worship. This is talking about what we're doing right now. Nice. 
day by day. Again, not legalistic. We don't have a service here every day. Don't come knocking on the door every day, right? It's cold in here most days, all right? This is the heart. They made it a priority to, to worship together corporately. I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here, but this is something that needs to be a pursuit for us as well. Again, it doesn't talk about what they did in the service. This is not supposed to be a manual for how to do a church service. Parts of the New Testament speak to that in other places, but here it's the heart. They made it a priority to worship together. There's scriptures that talk about that. We do not forsake the assembly of the saints. We Let us not give up the habit of meeting together and encouraging another, one another and worshiping together. That's what they were doing here. Again, it's the heart. Just coming and sitting in church with your heart totally disconnected is not super helpful either. But you gotta be here. This is something we see in the early church. It's something we need to see in the 2024 church as well. So thanks for being here, sidebar. Thank you. The eighth thing is this. This is kind of an overarching one. These believers, they lived lives of worship. Day by day, attending the temple, breaking bread, they received their food, glad and generous hearts, praising God. Somebody say, praising God. This, again, is intentionally vague. It doesn't talk anything about singing or a church service or a band or anything. What type of music? doesn't talk about that at all. This is a life and a heart of worship. It's like what it says in Psalm 34, 1. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's not just a once per week on a Sunday morning thing. You praise the Lord with your whole life in every area of your life, in every season. You're quick to boast about the Lord. You're quick to thank the Lord, to praise the Lord, to honor the Lord, to center yourself on the Lord. That's a life of worship. That's what worship is. When Jesus comes first in your life, when Jesus is the center of your life, you, you can live a life of worship. That's why the Bible talks about how whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, even if it doesn't seem the least bit spiritual. No, when your life is built and centered on Jesus, everything can be worship. The, the, the way that you talk, the, the way that you work, the way that you treat people, the way that you think, the way you use and see your money, everything can be worship if it's centered on the Lord Jesus. And that's what these believers did. They praised God, continually praised God. So those are our eight inputs, okay? Everybody take a breath with me, okay? What we see in those eight things, we see a Christ-centered community. There's our word of the day. Somebody say community. community. It's not just you yourself need to believe in Jesus. It's you need to believe in Jesus and live and walk out your faith in the context of community and family with other believers. Remember, you already looked around the room and looked people in the eye. Do that with them, right? You say, how and why did it happen that way? I'll remind you, it's the Holy Spirit. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, this is the direction He pulls you. This is the current that He pulls you down. It's to life and community in the church. There's no solo act. There's no plan B. It's the church. It's what we need. It's God's plan for us. And my question, don't answer this out loud. The question for us today is, do I see those things present in my life? Do I see those things present in my heart? Do I see these things present in my church? And what role am I playing in that? Now, before we move on and start to wind down, I want to encourage you in this. 100% of us don't do all eight of those things completely correctly all the time. 
all of us. We all stumble. We all have areas where maybe we're not quite as hot sometimes. Listen, that's called life. It's called you're a human being. And if you have heard any of those eight things and you go, oh, that's one I feel the Lord is telling me I need to improve in and, and kind of ramp up in, here's what the enemy will do. He will say to you, Brayden, who do you think you are? For example, you're, you know, the early church prayed. They were devoted to prayer. Brayden, you're not devoted to prayer. You call yourself a Christian? You're just pretending. You're a poser. Just give it up. Give up the charade. He'll lead you down a path of discouragement if you're not totally nailing some of these things. And if you follow that road, all that's gonna do is pull you off into the ditch further. That's not gonna help you improve in any of these areas. That's just gonna keep you in bondage and keep you in inactivity. Here's my encouragement to you. This is not a condemnation from the Lord. It's an invitation. If you are maybe lacking in some of these areas or maybe our church is lacking in some of those things, we draw near to God. We boldly approach his throne of grace. And we say, Lord, here I am. I wanna be your person. We wanna be the church you want us to be. So come and fill us, Holy Spirit, and guide us into the stuff you want us to be doing. God invites you. God invites us to that today because he loves you and he loves his church, okay? I wanna talk about outputs now. And then we'll start winding this down. We've talked about the inputs. We've talked about what the believers did. I want to talk about what God did. The things that these guys couldn't control, but God showed up and he delivered on. This is God's part. Look at this. I got five outputs to talk about. As the believers did all of these things, number one, awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. Right? That's not something they can just control or fabricate. This is something that God did in the midst of everything going on. They saw God moving in real time, powerfully, tangibly, undeniably. And I, far be it for me to make our faith all about feelings. It's not. Your feelings are like this important in the grand scheme of things. But there is no better feeling than when you sense the Lord move. And when you see God show up and deliver on something, that's what happens, awe. Your jaw hits the floor. You say, I can believe it because I know what the Lord can do, but I can't believe what he did. That's God. Awe came on every soul. And again, if you've seen God move in your life, if you've seen God move in your church, which we have a lot, you know what this feels like. The Holy Spirit brings that awe to us as all of this stuff goes on. The second thing is this. Another output, signs and wonders were being done. That's what it says in verse 43. Many signs and wonders being done through the apostles. You say, well, wait, isn't that an input? Isn't that something that the apostles were doing? No, read it closely. Signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. So they were the vessel. They were the vehicle. But God was doing the signs and wonders. So right away on that, You just need to understand, and I say this out of love, you and I, in and of ourselves, we're we're nothing, okay? There are certain things we should take seriously. We shouldn't take ourselves seriously, okay? We're nothing. Now, you're loved, you're important, you're valuable, all those things, but you're, you're a vessel is what you are. You are a shell, you are a vehicle, for God to work through. The church is not about 
individual people running around chasing after signs and wonders by their own strength for their own glory. No, here's what the church is. We love and submit and surrender to Jesus and put Jesus first and we trust that in pursuit of that, in following that, the signs and wonders will come as we follow Jesus. He is God. He brings the signs and the wonders through us. It's not about us. The glory is not for us. It's for him. So we don't obsess over signs and wonders, right? We don't make that our life goal to chase after them. We chase after Jesus. But I'm telling you, as we chase after Jesus, we're gonna see these things. We also reject the idea that signs and wonders don't happen anymore, right? That was for the past. You know, this that happened in the age of the apostles, but once they died off, they're done. Baloney, horse feathers, because we've seen this. We've seen healings. We've seen deliverance. We've seen salvation. We've seen chains being broken. We've seen miracles happen. And if God's done them before, we fully believe that God can do them again and will do them again. Amen? So we need that. But we find that as we seek after Jesus together and then he delivers on it. Okay? Third thing is this. The church, they had glad and generous hearts. It says in verse 46... Right there at the end, they had glad and generous hearts. Now, if you needed any proof that something supernatural was going on, there it is right there. Because the human tendency in and of ourselves is not to be generous. You might be a very nice person, but I'm telling you, the tendency is to do this and not do this, okay? We all have this hoarding mentality of I've got to just keep stuff to myself and now they'll be fine or they should just pull their bootstraps up and work harder and and baloney, this is what we need. And God produces a glad and generous heart in us. We can't fake it at all. You just, you'll get tired of trying to fake generosity after like one hour. It's exhausting. However, if it's the Holy Spirit changing your heart, this can become a lifestyle that you do all the time. And by the way, generosity is known by its fruit. Some of us, we'd probably like to say, yeah, I'm super generous. It's like, okay, Tell me how you've been generous. Well, it's just in my heart. I know I'm generous. Oh, okay. What you're telling me is you love the idea of being generous, but as of yet, you've yet to be generous is what you're telling me. It's known by its fruit. There's, and it's not to brag on yourself, but there's things that you point to. Say, okay, Lord, here's how you've enabled me to be generous. Here's how I blessed somebody else. There's fruit. There's always fruit. It's always action. And I said it again. I said it already. I'll say it again. It's a blessing to be generous. It's a blessing to bless other people. That is brought about by the Holy Spirit. Again, good luck getting to that on your own. Not gonna happen. Sorry, wah, wah. That's a Holy Spirit thing. Number four, I got two more to go. An output. One of the things that was happening is that these believers had favor with all the people. See that in verse 47? I find that interesting and kind of strange in a way. Not strange like, oh, that sounds wrong. The Bible must be wrong or I don't believe it. No, no, no. I just think the world that these guys lived in, we're gonna see very soon after Acts chapter two, they did not have favor with all the people. There's persecution. I, I think of the world that we live in where there's just indifference toward the faith. People go, oh, church, like, eh, eh, not my scene. Or, or, or some people are really hostile against the faith right, looking to take the church down. We don't live in, a, in an era where there's favor with all the people, and neither did they, really. However, for that time, that brief pocket, that brief window, they did have favor with all the people. 
People weren't bugging them. People weren't harassing them, oppressing them. That's going to come very soon in the book of Acts. But right there, God had his people protected in this little pocket of peace. Because they're not having to go out putting fires out all the time. Oh no, like more threats and more persecution and more, we got to run and hide. No, No, they use this time of peace to work on the foundation and strengthen the foundation. You know, a a building is only as strong as its foundation. If If a house doesn't have a strong foundation, it might look really nice, but when the wind blows, it's gonna fall over. But when the foundation is strong, it can weather the storm. Storms are coming for these guys. But God is giving them peace and giving them favor so that they can lacquer up the foundation and strengthen it. God did that. Good luck just trying to convince the world to show favor to Christians. It's not going to happen. But God provided it, a window of peace for them. The fifth thing is this. Oh, I love this. As a result of all the things happening, look what God did. God added more people to their number. How often? Every day. Added to their number day by day who were being saved. So right away, you need to understand, numerical growth is not the goal of the church. It's not our main highest target. We just gotta grow this and get more people. We do want more people. We do want more people to get saved, but I'm saying our target and our goal is Jesus and honoring Jesus and walking with Jesus. As it was for them, and the numerical growth happened as a result. See who did the adding? Look right there. And the Lord did it. Now, that's not to say there's anything wrong with churches having like growth strategies and being intentional. How can we reach more people and all that? That's totally fine if the heart is right. But I'm just saying that's not the be-all, end-all goal. That's something that God does. Furthermore, we can't bring any lasting growth to a person, lasting change. We can't do anything of any consequence on our own anyway. It literally says in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, only God can bring true growth. Only God. So we're foolish if we leave God to the side and we just start chasing after numerical growth. It's not the point. Jesus is the point. It's like these, uh, these believers were saying, look, the, our greatest growth strategy is this kingdom life that we're living together. There's another verse, uh, it's in the Gospel of John. It says, by this the world will know you're my followers if you love each other. If we get the community thing right, that's our greatest growth strategy. We're gonna focus on the things we know God wants us to do, and we believe that as a result, the thing's gonna grow, and it comes from him. It's not just some cheap strategy to put more butts in seats. It's trusting in the Lord to bring the increase. That's what they did. That's what we ought to be doing as well. So there's our outputs. This right here, what we're seeing, we're seeing that God loves to show up and move in the church when the church is built and centered on him. That's what we see here. And how I want to end this today, because I know that's a lot of information. It's a lot of stuff to consider. I want to just express to you guys and to the Lord how grateful I am. Because I look around in our church, and your leaders look around in our church, and we're paying attention. We're trying to seek the Lord and seek his heart and to to lead things in the way that he wants it to be led. And I'm really grateful because a lot of that stuff we talked about today that, that was there in the early church, that's there in the blueprint of what the church is supposed to look like, I'm seeing a lot of that in our church in this season. I really am. Uh, I would not say that if I didn't believe it to be true. I'm not just trying to butter you up for no reason, right? 
I'm generalizing quite a bit. However, when I look at those inputs that we talked about, I look at our church, I see people who are devoted. Definitely. I see people who are serious about the word. I see people who are serious about fellowship. I see people that love to eat together. Come on now. I see that there's a heart for prayer. People bring prayer requests all the time. People talk about prayer all the time in our church. I see you guys taking care of each other in this church, man. I see it. We see it. We don't even see it all, but what we see, it's encouraging. We see a valuing of being together for corporate worship, like what we're doing right now. All these things are really good signs. And some of the outputs, again, we can't even control those, but some of those are there as well. Man, I tell you what, there's a sense of awe and wonder right now about what God is doing in our church. It's amazing. He's just been blessing and moving and stirring and changing and giving us opportunities. It's, it's amazing. We're in awe about that. You know, the signs and wonders one, we're seeing that some. Lord, let's have some more. Why not? I'm seeing generous hearts growing and growing in this church. I've heard stories from you guys. It's amazing. I don't know what degree we have favor with all the people in the world as a church, but like no one's throwing bricks through the window. That's like probably a good sign. And we're growing numerically. God is blessing us right there. Yes, there is still work to do. We are not a perfect church. We were until all of us showed up, okay? But good things are happening. Good metrics are present. We are on the right track as a church. I'm so encouraged by that. But I don't want you to forget to see your life in this. I don't want you to forget to see how your efforts and your contributions and your seeking the Lord impacts and influences this because we all have things to work on. We all have things to grow in. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. And God is inviting us, each of us, to dig deep, not to despair over the things we're not doing as well at, but to draw near to him in the things we're not doing as well at, to walk with him, to be in relationship with him, and to be in relationship with each other. That's what God's calling us to do today. In other words, let me phrase it this way. Let's be the church. That's what God's calling us to do, It's to be the church. And I wanna tell you right now, I'm all in, and I hope that you are too.